I want to start with a correction. We talked about in our last episode, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which reported uh, a psychedelic drug does better than the standard SSRIs, antidepressant drugs, for reducing uh, moderate to severe depression. And I said ketamine. And we we agreed on that, but it was right. The correction is that it's actually psilocybin. And so that's something that we're going to talk about today. So I wanted to start out with the correction. You can take it away from there. All right. I, I, I hope that shows that we're interested in perfecting our product. I, I might have <laughs> said ketamine myself. Obviously, there are a lot of psychedelics that are being floated out there for what they have to offer. And uh, ketamine is one you hear about a lot. Psilocybin is kind of traditional. So I want to start out with a quick lecture on uh, philosophy of science, you know, just for the edification of our uh, elite audience. In 1962, uh, a philosopher named Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And his concept was pretty straightforward. There's a model that everybody accepts about the way the universe works. And uh, it's more or less accurate or sometimes fanciful. And then more and more evidence creeps in that it doesn't work. And then there's a mixed model going on. And then finally, the new paradigm, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M, takes over. It's called a paradigm shift. <clears throat> and the classic example of that was that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and everything else revolved around us. But that took quite a bit of hedging when astronomers started charting different planets. Um, they would see that that doesn't work and they'd have to come up with all kinds of elliptical intercessions to make those work until finally, you know, Galileo and others, uh, Ptolemy, and they came up with the correct concept that the sun was the center of the universe. So people have often talked in the addiction field that we're going uh, undergoing a paradigm shift. And usually they're pretty confident that their paradigm is going to come into play because it's like science. And the that's not true. Um, obviously, the existing paradigm was the AA disease model, which in itself claimed to be a great scientific advance. It was proposed by Jelinek as a real, well, look, <clears throat> this is the way things work. That um, itself was a paradigm shift to, it from, was. from the standard model to an AA model. Yeah. And so, by the way, I just wanted to let your audience in on this. I, you and I had discussed this earlier. If you go to the Rutgers Center of Alcohol Studies timeline, two names are mentioned, two individuals' names. If you go all the way down, they've been around for decades. They started at Yale and they came to Rutgers. Jelinek and Stanton Peel, and they cite my book, Diseasing of America, and whoever put that together said that that was a paradigm shift. That there was a new way of thinking about addiction, that it wasn't a disease shell, and I proposed a disease model. But that's been a mixed bag because one other model that's come forward, obviously, is the brain disease model, which says, oh, that old AA model really wasn't based on anything. We have a new brain model of addiction. And it's funny, it sort of replaces AA by saying it's a brain disease but it's basically an exposure model. It says, well, you sort of have to take a lot of it 
and then your brain gets transfixed and can't change. And that model is out there. Uh, it, it, it's proposed, uh, uh, we've discussed it, you and I, uh, in the New York, it's on the front page of the New York Times, people say, or in MedPage, where a doctor says, I can't believe people won't let me help them. They don't realize that their child has a disease or their family member has a disease, a chronic brain disease caused by ch changing their brain brought on by use of usually painkillers. So there's all kinds of opposition floating around now to that model. Uh, you've interviewed Maya Salovitz and you've interviewed Carl Hart and both of them say, well, that doesn't exactly work. And we've discussed, Carl doesn't have so much of an alternative model as just saying, well, people take things all the time and they don't become addicted. How's that model, chronic brain disease model work? And Maya has a more complex reaction. She says, well, addiction is a response to something inherent in a person, kind of disease-like. And in her case, it was autism and depression. And she took antidepressants and that worked. And she's, so like a, she, she's like a hybrid where, yes. where uh, it's all socioeconomic, psychological, but also biological. And to the extent it's biological, there are medicines that can help bring you out of it. And, and some people, she's proud of that. Some people say, well, look, that's a good mixed model. My cousin Rich took a course in at the University of Washington or yeah. in, and he said, well, what about Stanton Peel's model? And they say, well, he leaves out this whole brain disease model. And of course, why one reason we like Carl is because Carl says, well, nothing about the brain. And also uh, uh, Mark Lewis, nothing about the brain says chronic relapsing disease. That's just not how brains work. So um, this brings us to the psilocybin. New England Journal of Medicine published a study <clears throat> doing a head-to-head -head comparison of psilocybin and then as SSRI. And the for the most part, psilocybin won out. And it was only, there's a whole other background there's been a tremendous difficulty in establishing the efficacy of antidepressants for people at lower levels of depression. And just to give people a quick scientific overview, you present people with this drug that you're testing and a placebo, but you need to have a placebo that has some psychoactive component because you know people feel usually some response to antidepressants and they could tell, well, I'm taking the drug. So they might give them a small dose of amphetamine. And for most levels of depression, they find a remarkably small, if any, kind of difference between the placebo and the antidepressant. So the New England Journal of Medicine compared for moderate to severe depressives, uh, they, they gave them either psilocybin, or an SSRI, and for the most part, the marginal benefits, both in terms of a lower depression score somewhat, and other outlying components uh, in favor of psilocybin. So that's a stunning result, and you could call it a part of a paradigm shift because we're now in a period where basically everybody is interested in and exploring uh, psychedelic remedies for mm -hmm. metal issues and addiction. Johns Hopkins has a whole uh, department devoted to that. A man wrote a bestseller called Changing My Mind, uh, 
and he's a f agricultural writer and he, his bestseller, he says, you know, I never took drugs. I'm not a drug explorer, but you know, everybody sort of has a set way of looking at things. And then when you take a psychedelic that rearranges that way of looking at things, which brings us to how do you react to psilocybin uh, being antidepressant? What, how, how do you think that works? What, what, what does that ring a bell in your mind in terms of human functioning and being a therapist and whatever? Do you want, in terms of how it could be applied and how it could be useful or well, why do my you, concerns? I'm going to ask you why it works, you know? Yeah. Why, do you, why do you think psilocybin can be helpful and more helpful than SSRIs? Do, do you have a... You talk a lot about your Uncle Oscar, who uh, I love the story that you tell. And so if people don't know, just to put it in short, he smoked for however many years, 40 years or something. And, well, uh, only 25. But, okay, you know, okay. And from the and, age of 18 till the age of uh, 43 or so. And so he was a total... He was anti-big industry. And... He was so a union guy, yeah. They're, they're, uh, and a union guy, right. Okay, so there were plenty of re plenty of times and plenty of reasons you might think that your Uncle Oscar could have said, you know, this smoking thing really just isn't cutting it for me. He had a small daughter and a right. teenage son. You know, that's not good, he might have said. But, you know, he lived his life day by day. Couldn't find anything that really usurped that urge to smoke, whatever it was doing for him. And then when he, uh, when he finally quit, the reason was that someone called him out. Well look at you or you're not doing what you preach because you're just you're just caving in and um, giving money to the big tobacco industry and he said well geez you know you're right and he smoked the last pack someone said well can i have your, i'm gonna quit can i someone said can i have the last pack of cigarettes he said, nah, I'm, not, I'm not gonna waste a good cigarette and then he quit because that was a moment that his values a value that was very important to him however odd you might think it is uh that was important so it was enough that that eclipsed and whatever else was percolating over time eclipsed his urge to smoke and then he kind of forgot about it uh he, and quit. i think i think you really hit on something he had a sudden rearrangement of his mind right you know i'm smoking people bother me you know maybe my teenage son says that why do you smoke blah, blah, blah. and then all of a sudden sham wait a second smoking violates the most important thing in my life for god's sake I'm anti-capitalist. And when you made that shift, boom, it's, it was a spring in his mind. And people have all kinds of experiences like that. You know, uh, I talk about a man who quit smoking. He had been smoking for 40 years. He had a heart attack and he started to light up a cigarette af after the operation. He had open heart surgery and his daughter said, dad, if you, I'll, get you a cigarette if you smoke it i'll never talk to you again hmm. and he said okay i'll quit all of a sudden there's a rearrangement in your mind and i think that's a great example because well how do you rearrange your mind why was oscar you were saying well maybe a lot of things were accumulating and that co-worker just sprung the spring and psychedelic drugs kind of rearrange your ways of thinking about things and all of a sudden you see life in a new different way right so it sort of opens up psychedelics tend to open up avenues in your mind or let's say um 
clear cognitive distortions in your mind that you might all regularly have and cognitive dissonance that you may, may have about the way that you see the world to such an extent that you could change your mind about something sort of freely or make an observation about something more freely. And once you learn that new thing or have a different way of looking at it, you kind of can't unlearn it. So if it's a, if you make some sort of discovery that you're open to making while on psychedelics, then and it's important enough to you and it makes enough sense to you, then you can kind of put that into regular practice in your life. And I see that some people might have, uh, I know at Johns Hopkins are studying doing sort of a regiment of psychedelic therapies where you have cognitive therapy, plus you're taking psychedelics, so your mind's a little more open and you come back for regular visits. And, um, and it's been reported that some people take sort of a, a fairly sizable dose and they have one single session and they say, you know what, I'm sort of like our life process program where people do module one out of eight. And they say, you know what, you asked me some of those questions. I'm realizing what the problem is. I'm all good now. So they've, you know, there's been reported that people can take psychedelics maybe one time, have a, have an idea and say, I think I know what I need to do. Sort of like your uncle Oscar. So I think that's what, how it works in practice. And let's get going back to new England journal medicine study. Psychological counseling did accompany both the antidepressant treatment and the psilocybin treatment. And so, of course, whenever you read that, you go, huh, I wonder what the psychological therapy was. Shouldn't they sort of delve into that part of it? Right. But you're giving a hint of what that should be like. I mean, if you were, if, uh, we, our, our coaching life process program involves people at a distance we don't inject, supervise, or recommend drug use. But if you were talking to somebody who said, you know, I took in a whatever, and uh, all of a sudden, I just sort of thought, hey, you know, this isn't who I am, or maybe this thing that I've been worried about my whole life, you know, whether I'm good looking enough or smart enough, well, all of a sudden I realized, well, I'm too, whatever cognitive thing happens to people's minds. As a, a helper, how would, you how would you make that insight work in a more permanent basis? How Bes would you make Besides doing the reflecting and trying to put it in place, for, trying to help them put it in place. So that's uh, the start is to yeah. get them to explore that insight to make sure it's ensconced. And, and then I might, you know, I might go the 2.0 version of that might be, how does this work in a day to day for you? Um, who are you going to encounter? Uh, what, how does it map on to things like work or your relationships or what you need to do to take care of yourself and, and things like that? Now that you no longer think, Oh, I'm not smart enough. Right. How will that make you different at work? Or when right. you when somebody comes up to you and says, "Oh, I have a new idea," and you know, hypothetically, you'll say, "Oh, tell me what your new idea is. Maybe I'll like it and I'll understand it better." It's a liberating experience, and it has to be translated into life. Was it on? <clears throat> uh, was it on the podcast? I don't know if we were actually recording, but I told you about my wife and how yes. she. So, so okay, so she made a shift in her thinking about being afraid of uh, just so this could stand alone. She was a we got stuck in a tornado one time and she's, she associated since then uh, we were driving and we were in the tornado and we had to, it was pretty, actually pretty terrifying. I'm surprised I'm not 
more shocked by it. And so it, it started out a thunderstorm and it was raining really hard. And I kept saying, ah, don't worry about it. We'll pass through it. And it just got worse and worse. Hail, storms, wind. And we looked at the radar and said, there's supposed to be tornadoes. Hey, wait a minute. We're in a tornado. And so she's afraid. she was afraid to drive every time it was raining. And then, you know, she used to say, oh, oh it's raining. So here you take the wheel or it's raining. So I can't take the interstate. But then she realized that it wasn't practical in life. And she was able to actually, she is a psychotherapist. And you, did you, I mean, you, uh, did you do any CBT around that to help her realize her new feelings? To her credit, um, she did most of it, but maybe that's sort of like a client that we would get at life process program. She sort of spoke, she, I would talk about it with her and maybe it was sort of like the same relationship a, a clinician might have. And she would say something like, well, I need to get Hadley, our daughter from point A to point B. And sometimes I need to take the interstate and I, I think I did ask things like, well, you've done it before. What's the difference between now and earlier? So she came to this conclusion sort of on her own. She was able to think about what driving meant, what torrential weather meant in just different terms and uh, think about her own abilities and realize that her attitude toward things will, will perhaps make it worse or better depending on how she's feeling. And in a way she saw that, well, she saw the irrationality of the fear. Like if you go back to ra rational emotive therapy and Albert right. Ellis. <clears throat> Let me talk about, um, I don't take, in your lifetime, did you use psychedelics or did you use other drugs mainly? No, I use psychedelics. So I don't use psychedelics now, maybe every five years. Uh, but as a result of that title of that book, Changing My Mind, and as a result of this description you're giving, sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should be taking psychedelics. Oh, God, where would I get them? It sounds like a ton of work. <laughs> um, and then I think, well, what do psychedelics do? They allow you to turn into a new corner of your thinking and instead of like rejecting it, say, you know, maybe this offhand, almost crazy way of thinking is really a good new way of thinking. Right. And, there and are probably so, some things that really are crazy about it, but like, uh, what is it going to hurt to explore it kind of a thing? It's a whole different slant. And you've yeah. maybe been thinking, uh, the, the point of the changing my mind was, I mean, you've been thinking about some things the same way for 20, 30, your whole life. So what if you think about this, something you used to think was bad, you think, well, that's not so bad or it's good. Well, that's a different way of thinking, but a different way of thinking is okay. <clears throat> I can now make that my way of thinking. Right. And so I'm trying to get the benefits of psychedelic. I'm trying to do the placebo treatment, um, getting the benefits, just, you know, laying around my apartment. Well, this is a whole different way of thinking about something that used to bother me or made me anxious or made me depressed, but I'm going to, I'm going to let my mind go free and move in that direction and adopt or accept that insight. So, so it's sort of like the, the same way that, okay. So if someone takes a psychedelic and has, let's just call it a revelatory experience, but I think the way you described it is much more practical. Revelatory does it. Th then they can adopt that and then move on with their lives. You're just sort of, you can skip the first step and say, well, how do I turn this 
power of psychedelics back to myself, think about what it actually does on a rational basis and let my mind go free. And, and how might you do it? And save money too. And, you know, it's probably still, who knows? Is it still illegal to purchase psychedelics? I think most places it is. Uh, in fact, I know I know that in Vermont it is, even though we have a decriminalization law being put forward. My friend uh, Rick Barnett, the guy who's a psychologist here, and he's commented on our videos before. Uh, he is actually he's in line for when psychedelics are legal in a medical uh, medically to be a psychedelic assisted psychologist or whatever it's called. So we're waiting on it. I mean, uh, I mean, you and I maybe hang around in different circles and some people. <laughs> it's hard to believe at this point in time, obviously, if Johns Hopkins is creating an institute, that people don't just say, well, you know, give it a try. You know, uh, who decided it was illegal? <laughs> Which, you know, you're a little younger than me, about half my age. Back in the 1960s, when they just discovered whatever, you know, LSD and so forth, yeah, there was all kinds of warnings. And they said, oh, people looked at the sun and they became blinded. And then they say, oh, it rearranges your chromosomes. There's all, you know, there's all kinds of drug scare scams, you know, demonization going on. And so one insight to keep in mind now is, geez, that was all bullshit. Now, everybody, the most reputable people now are suggesting, well, this could be a very helpful, the New England Journal of Medicine, for God's sake. And so you know, the, I, I reflect on that. I mean, antidepressants were developed, SSRIs were developed in the 1980s, and they were considered an incredible modern medical breakthrough. As you might guess, mushrooms have been around forever, and... Uh, there were, they have evidence from cave paintings that people would, you know, they would depict people taking mushrooms and then imagining whatever, bursts of sun or God or gods. And they've been around since prehistory. So I think you and I share a skepticism about, well, the latest new modern medical cure, you and I, I think both believe that we all have the capacity within ourselves to make changes and have insights. And if we have the confidence in ourselves to allow ourselves to have those insights and then to go with them and test them out, we can all, you know, we can all advantage ourselves. Mm. And so, you know, it just amuses me. I mean, there are people you know, I know several who said, oh, you know, the ancient gods. Well, there's an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine which said something like, huh, what a new discovery, psilocybin, you know, and it's, you know, it's, yeah, been, around, it's been around forever. So let's talk about anxiety. Um, here's a sample of New York Times headlines during the pandemic. I mean, I, there's a thousand of them. Now is a good time to stop fighting anxiety. Politics, pandemics, and everyday life can cause negative feelings. These days, I just accept them. Hmm. Which is kind of a revelation. Maybe you could, you could work with that as a therapist. And then David Brooks, who's a famous conservative columnist, he's not so conservative anymore. The pandemic of fear and agony, readers open up about their mental states. So, you know, 
do you have a gut feeling if people are more anxious and depressed now as a result of the pandemic? Do you have a personal feeling or point of view about the world and people's mental health during the pandemic? Yeah, I think people, it must be that people are generally more anxious during the pandemic. Things seem, even if they're not, they at least seem more bleak. And of course, in some corners of the world that there necessarily are, um, and people are itching to connect uh, more than ever. So that's my gut. I just talked to my youngest daughter today, and she just moved to a new co-op in New York. And you know, I'm you know I have I'm somewhat financially concerned about all of this. And she said, "Oh, Dad, I'm glad we bought it because we just got in before the crush. There's just a new." And I've read this explosion in people buying houses and it's yeah. sort of like is that the anxiety boom backlog uh you know all of a sudden people say oh, okay we're free and we can go out now so right. let's not be so anxious so i i don't know if you can correlate uh, psychological depression and building depression but all of a sudden there's a building boom and you know we're talking about the power of the mind. Obviously, you know, my daughter was able to visualize. I mean, it took a while to sell her old place and buy a new place. She did all of this while all of this is going on. And I give, you know, kudos to her for being able to visualize that this would be a good time and to get in early. The pandemic of fear and anxiety and agony. So now uh, let's talk about, this is one where you know more than I do, I think. There's a columnist in the New York Times named Ezra Klein. He's this young, cheerful, obviously successful guy. He, he appears regularly on television, and now they've given him a regular podcast in the Times. And one of the things I, I'm amazed at is how often he gets a new podcast out. He'll have a couple of a week. Yeah. He's a productive guy. And so he talked about a man named who you alerted me to before, Judd Brewer. I'll just give a brief description. On February 10th, 2021, um, Ezra Klein wrote, the anxiety you're feeling, it's a habit you can unlearn. Is that consistent with what we've been saying so far in this podcast? Would you agree? Well, I know that I'm supposed to say yes. Well, but... Uh, let me just read what he says. Yeah, yeah. I want you to jump in with both feet. Yeah, yeah. Judd Brewer is the person he interviewed as an associate professor of psychiatry at Brown University, where he is the director of research and innovation in the Mindfulness Center. That sounds like us. You know what I mean? Innovation at the Mindfulness Center. That's what we're trying to do. I followed his work on meditation and addiction for years. And his new book, Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind, applies that research to anxiety, which he understands as a kind of addiction. Does that link up with the, not just that part of what he says? Does that link up? Absolutely. Judson, yes, absolutely. Because we think, can you, how, how, do, how does addiction and anxiety, how are those in some ways similar in terms of our therapeutic approach, would you say, or our coaching but, approach? Because both of those things are turning to a, to a sort of simplify belief system about what gets you by in the world or, or what you're missing in the world. And you want to get break outside those boundaries. Right. 
you know, is what's make well, your the story you told about your wife is an anxiety story. She was having anxiety attacks when it rained. And there's a way to break out of that, and you have a motivation. And once you sort of, you know, well, you learn that you probably won't have a tornado in Burlington. You'll so, okay. so if you if you believe that something is true, you know, you get like um, the, an association, and you immediately turn in your mind to, oh, this means this. Then you only have a a finite number of tools to address it. If you can, like you're saying, if you can, and that that is a self fulfilling prophecy too oftentimes uh, right if, 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 if something a brain makes you anxious and then you get anxious and then what your wife did with your encouragement and her motivation was to work through it and to see right. well but if you react to the anxiety by and of course one reason people take drugs is they're anxious and if you rely strictly on the solution what we might call a magical solution either in your mind or in the drug then you don't have the experience of working through something. Right. Now, so I'm just going to read. Um, and just like any addiction, you have to understand its rewards in order to begin addressing it. And I, I think you might, that's like where you come in. One last thing. It's a powerful work, framework and one I found useful in my own life. I'm not saying his book or his conversation cured me of anxiety, but it helped me to understand it better. So I thought, Gee, that's a funny way to recommend a guy. You know what I mean? Hmm. God, I have a whole new way of thinking about it. I really like it. Well, you know, still anxious. So, okay, you jump in with, you know, how you might understand that description. It, it gives me a way of understanding it, but hasn't changed anything. Well, that, okay, so the, the headline is what I was going to say. I don't necessarily agree with. There, there's other things to quibble with. The headline he gave was, um, this is how you unlearn something. But then his conclusion was, well, I just learned something new. I don't think I've really unlearned anything yet. So, And what I learned was some kind of thing that possibly made it less likely for him to. Right. I don't, I guess it's possible to unlearn something, but that's not, you shouldn't have that as a goal because that's a, just sort of a strange way of thinking about new things. You're, you're uh, incorporating new things that you learn into just a broader perspective of the world. This is what we're talking about. So actually, it could be possible that insofar as Ezra Klein takes what he learned from Judson Brewer and makes himself slightly less anxious in these situations, over time he could sort of have a memory about what cognitive distortions made him so anxious. So not only did he not un unlearn those things, he learned a little bit more about them. So that's what he's saying at the end. And we're that... really, that's very similar to what we're describing the psychedelic experience as. Right. Where you get an insight about a, something and then you, that enables you to reorient your behavior and then you can integrate that into your life. Right. Uh, do, would you know anything about, um, I know you, you've told me that um, Judd Brewer is a brain guy. I mean, and one thing that people like to do in our era, I think Mark Lewis and Maya are examples. People like it when you get a brain description of something. They feel, well, that's more real somehow. Right. But the downside of the brain description of things is the data show. And by, by the way, uh, amazingly, uh, John Kelly and Sally Sattel just published an article in the Washington Monthly where they say, well, that's the problem. And John Kelly's always pushed the disease theory. They did research which just backed up something that we say in our book, Outgrowing Addiction, 
which is brain disease models cause people to feel less able and likely that they can change. Does that fit into where? Uh... Yeah. So I think that Judd, for the most part, he is like, uh, I mean, he is a very practically, he, he thinks very practically about these things. And I think if you really asked, maybe if you give him a little psychedelics, <laughs> he might, he might only describe things in the common sense ways. I do think that he believes that he needs to appeal to an audience who won't believe something could be true if it sounds so obvious. So he starts to talk about the neurocorrelates of things. The problem I saw, I heard in the interview and that I've seen in his work before um, is not that it's not all true. It's just that he starts to describe things a little backwards. Like dopamine is something that, you know, dopamine hits or uh, the way your brain is wired and that it makes you do this rather than once you rearrange your beliefs and behaviors, that's why things happen in your brain. So if you really say it the real way, but what's really happening in order of the way it's happening, then it's sort of not worth saying. It's tautological. And so the, the fact that he just invokes brain scans and conversations about dopamine and what the neurocorrelates of behavior are get a little confusing. And I think that more people could be helped if he didn't do that. And also... The brain thing, you know, and we get back to the people saying, you know, uh, Sarah Waitman is just one person. Now, once those brain changes occur, well, you're addicted and it's a chronic brain disease. It overstates both the causative direction and how readily, you know, people reject them. Now, I mean, obviously, I mean, Carl did research where he gave people like not five or 10 bucks who were habituated to methamphetamines. And he said, well, you know, I'll give you this money if you don't take him. And they say, okay. And so, and that guy uh, in the hospital gets up out of bed. It's, that doesn't mean it's easy, but his daughter says, well, I'll never talk to you again. And, you know, he's been taking smoking for 40 years. He was between the ages of 18 and 60. And then all of a sudden he's able to rearrange it. So, <clears throat> Exactly the way you're, if you're to start by saying, well, look, your brain has become habituated. Uh, here's a graph of when you take nicotine, what it does and how it seeps into your uh, cells. And, you know, it's now your whole body is cellularly uh, um, adjusted to it, adapted mm -hmm. to it. And you're going, oh, my God, I'll never quit. And if you make a similar description of how anxiety you know, permeates your brain reactions to things, you'd be sitting there, you know, with a pencil, you know, chewing it and say, I'm more and more anxious now. If you start at the other end and say, well, you know, what would it take for you to behave in a different fashion? Or what's the most important thing to you? Or do you remember when you didn't have this reaction, you know, before you became developed a phobia about mm. this or that you start with the doable part and as you point out that also has you can trace anything back to the brain and which is where among other places and among other people mark lewis goes well the brain changes and you things you do it adapts developmentally and things that you do impact back on the brain and so that's where you know uh, Ezra Klein's recommendation 
This is a great book. I loved it. It really made me understand anxiety. Oh, I'm just as anxious as I was before, but I understand it better. <laughs> okay, one last item from the news. Um, Seth Rogen, there was another interview. You know, uh, I think they're going to change the name of the New York Times to uh, the New York Addiction Review. <laughs> because, you know, we don't, we don't search around for stuff. We just read the newspaper. Pops up. Yeah, the standard. Every, yeah. If you were worried, oh, for God's sake, thank God they're going to cure anxiety and addiction any day now. What do we have? We won't have anything to do. That hasn't turned out. If that was your anxiety, buddy, you can cast that aside. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to, and somebody uh, wrote in a question to us Do you think addiction will ever be cured? No. I don't think any addiction or anxiety. Those are human parts of the human experience. So Seth Rogen was, you know, his story is something like this. Um, he grew up in Canada. He was somewhat maladjusted. And now he would say he had ADHD or whatever people say, call it now. And somewhere along the line, at a fairly young age, he learned that uh, marijuana alleviated those feelings and enabled him to proceed through life in a way that he experienced as positive. Then he came down somehow that reassurance was enough to enable him to come down to LA from, I think he was in Vancouver and start doing stand-up come man. That's, you know, you have to have some guts mm. when you're, you're still a young man and come down doing that. And then while he was at it, he and an old friend actually from high school started writing scripts Anyhow, now he's a super duper star. I mean, there's hardly anybody bigger in Hollywood than Seth Rogen. And so the interviewer went to his house and it's some magnificent place somewhere, you know, in the Hollywood Hills or Santa Monica Hills, wherever that people like that live. And he's married. Uh, he doesn't have kids. And he, I mean, one of the most appealing things about Seth Rogen, of course, was, well, he just says, oh, I'm stoned all day. And yet, you know, you have to give a guy credit for just telling you that. And then he says, we decided not to have children because we thought that would make us too anxious and would interfere with our being stoned. So we have a dog. And maybe towards the end of our lives, in the last three or four years, we'll regret not having children. You know, maybe it'd be nice to have children, you know, as you cease to exist. But, you know, this is the way we decided to go. And so... I mean, one of the things that's appealing about Seth Rogen is he just lays it all out there. Mm -hmm. You know, how are you going to, and he's, people like him. He's not trying to pretend he's better than you or worse than you. He's not trying to excuse his habits. He explains it. Is Seth Rogen a guy, I mean, he's stoned around the clock. Is Seth Rogen an addict? Well, I could hardly call him an addict. I could hardly, not that I would call anyone that, but yeah, I know what you mean. How you can hardly call his relationship with marijuana an addiction because everything he's described. That's a better about, way of putting it. Thank you. Uh, he's extremely productive. You know, actually, one thing that's funny is he, he has whatever he self described ADHD, I think you said. Ask, no, ADHD. And I, I always think about that, like my schooling. We're talking about psychedelics opening up your mind, maybe. And I feel like whatever ADHD is, whatever behaviors manifest onto something like that diagnosis, you sort of have a certain way of thinking about things that doesn't align with 
that this cookie cutter educational system. And then he grew up and he has all these talents that are associated with the ways that he thinks. And so it's almost like he has to unlearn what he was told was appropriate. And it, and that marijuana helps him with that feel relaxed and lets himself just sort of be himself and think the thoughts that he wants to think. It's made him extremely productive and lucrative. And he, he doesn't seem, it doesn't seem at all like he's not taking care of his responsibilities or that he's unhappy. So let's jump into parenting. <clears throat> and we're not putting down Seth Rogen's parents. I'm sure they're lovely people. Mm-hmm. If you had a child who was a little off the beaten track, how would you help them make those things happen? You know, well, I mean, I think, would you and I, would you agree you'd prefer that they be able to do that without marijuana as the case may be? I mean, mar- yeah. Yeah. I, I hate, I hate the idea that someone thinks that they don't have it within themselves to produce something great or feel well. Um, and that they would need marijuana all the time. So I wouldn't go ahead and recommend, you know, parents, marijuana would be good for this guy. It would be right. more like there are environments where this person's skills could really, really manifest nicely and grow nicely if they're willing to learn in it. Yeah. And what would you tell a child if you were a parent in a situation like that? Your child's a little offbeat, has, you know, whatever. It's not fitting in what would some parental tips be to prevent them from having that lead them down the negative path? I always think about what I would tell me and uh, probably, pro- probably something like you might feel like you don't fit in uh, or that you're doing something wrong. The thing is you might be channeling your energy to the wrong places. Actually you have a lot of skills and we should be looking for those places where you can apply them because, uh, man, you're going to be really good at A, B, and C if you really, you know, tracked onto it. Now, I, I don't present myself as a model of mental health, and I don't think anybody else would. But what is distinctive about me, you know, I'm writing my memoir, Scientific Life in the Edge, my lonely quest to change how we see addiction, is my ability to think about things differently and my perseverance in being able to maintain that point of view, despite kind of everybody in the world disagreeing with me. Mm. And, you know, I describe how I came to have that point of view. And I had a mother named Sarah. And um, I was always good at school. So it wasn't like I had to do a lot of work. But for example, uh, well, I grew up in Philadelphia and they had these benches where all of the benches allowed you to write with your right hand. And I wrote with my left hand. And, you know, I'm such a model of this. I've only recently confessed something to myself and other people. I always tell people I'm left-handed because I write with my left hand, but I'm not really left-handed. Like I brush my teeth. I can't brush my teeth with my left hand or use the scissors with my left hand. I have to use my right hand. Mm. And I throw a ball with my right hand. So, you know, somebody can say, well, your brain screwed up, buddy. You got to be something. You can't be both left and right-handed. Did you know that we have that in common in reverse? (laughs) I write with my right hand and I do most everything else with my left hand. And so (laughs) somebody, if you were a brain theory, you'd say, well, proof positive for God's sake. (laughs) You know, I've been through so many life eras. I think that used to be called, well, it didn't used to be called anything when I was growing up. They actually would try and get you to write with your right hand. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, what Sarah did right, well, depends, you know, on how you react to me. Sarah said, uh, those things aren't important. No, you're right. With, if you're right with your left hand, you're right with your left hand. And I, for example, I always reverse my B's and my D's. You can just see, I, they could put me in a textbook. They could put me in a documentary film. This is hmm. dyslexia. It's still, yeah. You can't tell the B and the D thing. And my mother said, who, care, what's, who cares about that? When you write the word bad, you know, just remember they both uh, are pointing in the middle. You know, and I developed some cognitive techniques over time. I mean, it was a little bit of a problem, but, and my mother would say, you know, there's some things you're going to be good at and some things you're not going to be good at. Like foreign languages are not a strong suit of mine. Um, remembering proper names aren't a strong suit of mine, but just the way you might have liked to be encouraged for what you were good at rather than what you were bad at, that's what Sarah did. And so, you know, I, I, I'm a textbook case of something, brain wiring wise, I don't even like to talk about that. Um, this whole dyslexia and ADHD, I'm so liable for this kind of a diagnosis. And, you know, my mother just said, well, screw all that. And the reason she would say screw all that is because you have to live your life somehow and you have to like go around using the tools that you have to become a productive human being. And that's the name of the game. And that's what you do as an educator or as a helper at schools. You look at people and you say, well, you know, they come as a package. They're better at some things than others. Let's build on their strengths because your job is not to turn out people who label themselves. Your job is not to permanently imprint people. Your job is that you told the last time we talked, you do a little quiz. How do you see yourself if your life goes well in 20 or 40 years? And, you know, virtually everybody, they want to have a family and a job and a way of living and a reasonable lifestyle is how to get from where they are now to there. And for some of the people, it's going to take somewhat slightly more tricky steering. And that's, that's your job and that's our job. Uh, not to tell them that they can't get to that destination or why it is that they're having so much trouble getting to that destination. They already know that. So if you, if, uh, if you believe that you were dyslexic rather than just a more broad way of describing, oh, it looks like you mix up letters sometimes, here are some tricks to remembering them. You think that would have bogged you down? I don't know if you're a good candidate for ever have would have been believing that, but you think that would have bogged you down? Like you start believing it and it kind of caves well, in. Well, I mean, itself? one thing that I think about, I'm so old, I'm 75. I'm before dyslexia. They sort of didn't mm -hmm. have a way of calling you at when I was growing up in the 50s. I was a kid in the 50s. I, you know, I went to high school and college in the 60s. And it's an example of where, it, I mean, let's get back to the earlier theme. They came up with antidepressants and they found out that psilocybin's better. And psilocybin's been around, we're not religious people, since God created Earth. He made mushrooms. And it's an example of where we have an entire mental health industry and revolution. And the question is, and, you know, John Kelly with Sally Sattel just wrote, you know, argumentally calling people, telling people they have a, a disease, addiction or otherwise, makes it less likely they're going to change. Have we had, 
and all of these things have taken place mainly since the 1970s. They've really accelerated. So I got in under the wire, you know mm. what I mean? Before everybody got dizzy. I mean, I did okay at school, so they didn't have to put me anywhere. I mean, I didn't have to go to a special school. And so I just floated along without anybody identifying me. Somebody might say, oh, I wish somebody would have seen the trauma of my experiences, kid. And the main thing I would say is my mother prevented it from being traumatic. She just said, well, don't worry about it. And so, you know, going back to one of those earlier quotes, uh, learn to live with anxiety. If you learn to live with it to a, a, a deep enough extent, well, then you're not anxious. Right. <laughs> so really you and I are, uh, we're such Neanderthals. I don't know what your excuse is, but <laughs> we're, not, we're not buying the whole mental health revolution is where we're coming from. And uh, as much as, you know, people say, what the hell's the matter with these Cro-Magnon, the Neanderthals. I don't want to put down any uh, uh, sub, you know, previous uh, species. But what we're saying is eliminating a lot of the labeling and diagnostics, you know, labeling people as being whatever, you know, addicted, A, uh, explaining to them that it's the way their brain works, B, See, giving them antidepressants and telling them, oh, this addresses whatever the serotonin synapse lapses are. All of those things have come at a cost. And nobody, nobody says, if you say to them, do you feel people are more mentally healthy human beings today than they were when their parents were growing up? Nobody answers that yes, hmm. you know. As people love to say, I was even having a conversation about this with a colleague that loves what we're doing. And he said, well, you know, there is an argument. I said sort of what you said. I said, well, there is an argument that it's just now being identified more because there's less stigma associated with you know getting these diagnoses. Now, if you get past that, what you were just said was, okay, so there's less stigma associated with the diagnosis. Isn't the diagnosis supposed to like move people forward? And so no matter if we're not saying like, oh, look, there are all these new cases of ADHD or whatever. And so that's bad. We're saying people are generally mentally unhealthy and that's bad, despite all of the new diagnoses, which should be really helping everyone, shouldn't they? And I guess another way is I would take another layer out of stigma. People say, oh, it's not a stigma to admit that. Right you're traumatized or you're anxious or you're depressed or that you're addicted, we say, and this is how we believe harm reduction, harm reduction means never having to even deal with a stigma. We say, okay, you know, what do you want to be doing? You know, and you're, we're not going to label what you're doing now, you know, one way or another, we're not going to add to your stigma. Forget it not having a stigma about being whatever you're doing uh, about that being a disease. We, we're so unstigmatized. We're not even going to say that's a disease. We're right. just going to say, well, that's you. Right. We're, we're the uh, ultimate and unstigmatizing. So why don't you, you started us out apologizing on, uh, it was me as well as you calling uh, psilocybin mescaline. We're not here doing product recommendations. So do you want to take us out this, um, this Sunday on our happy 
alternative models of addiction, changing the paradigm of addiction and, uh, and to some extent mental health in a whole new way? Yeah, all I'll say is that they're, um, they're really practical ways of talking about all this stuff that we talked about. And it's almost like if as soon as you talk, if you invoke the word medicine or diagnosis, it's sort of like when you're having a conversation with someone and then if you press the record button, everyone kind of freezes up and stops being so fluid. So as soon as you say like medical or disease, people kind of freeze up and they have to remember what the standard track is that they're supposed to talk about and they're not free flowing. And that's, we're saying that looks like that what the new England journal of medicine is saying is that we kind of get in these modes all the time, ironically, and that psilocybin or psychedelics are, are tools that people can use to get out of that mindset where they feel so stuck. Um, the, the thing that I'm, worried about i don't think we got to this but everything the thing i'm always concerned about is that while we agree that all that is true we have a standardized medical model of things so if if the research at let's say johns hopkins and i know the other places too is saying that well psychedelics can open up this whole new way of thinking i i'm worried i call i always call it is this going to be prozac 2.0 is it going to be something that could be useful for all the reasons we described it being useful and it could be useful in the same way that just getting in touch with yourself and being mindful and figuring out how to move forward in a different, you know, more broad thinking kind of a way. Is this going to turn into like a sort of a medicine where people say, take this, it'll make you better. Sort of like Prozac. Here, take this, it'll stop making you anxious. And we'll I don't think anybody could watch this show and say that we're in danger of encouraging that. And remember, no, I no, did no. this drive. I did describe taking trips without taking drugs earlier. Mm. I did say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have enough energy to get scored drugs here during the pandemic. So can you do a psychedelic trip in your own free time? So I, I think, I don't think we're in danger of doing that, but thanks for warning us. We're, we, we don't want to create a whole new panacea. We wouldn't write a book. Oh, everybody takes psychedelics. We, right by, by the way, by we, I mean, Humans, Americans, people who are on this project. And, and you and I, you know, we're common, we're down to common sense guys. So um, we feel that good therapy and good psychology, good psychiatry is talking about things in terms that make sense to people's normal human experience, which is somewhat what Ezra Klein was saying about you know, learning about anxiety, but in a way that brings it into the realm of your consciousness and your ability to change. And that's, that's what the purpose of the life process program is. And that's the paradigm we're trying to recreate uh, in our podcast. I hope that everyone has a relaxing, comfortable Sunday and that this didn't make anyone anxious, but hopefully it even uh, ameliorated some anxiety that anybody might be having about any of these topics. We're trying to lower their anxiety level. Take care. Au revoir. Bye-bye.